Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, everybody, and welcome in to Commanding the Huddle. I am your host, Ryan Fowler from the Draft Network. And before we get into today's episode, which I'm super excited to get in with you guys, I wanted to let you know that this pod is brought to you by our partners at Bet Online. Bet Online continues to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all of the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the NBA playoffs, fights, and even next season's future bets. And also, don't forget that Major League Baseball is officially back. Who are you picking in the World in the World Series? Is it the Yankees, Astros? Could it be the Nationals? BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. Super easy to get started. Head on over to the website today and use your mobile device to join and use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, so let's get rocking and rolling here in today's episode. And what I wanted to talk about today, and I wanted to give you guys a full preview of the NFC East. We've talked a lot about the Commanders, their roster. We'll obviously discuss more as they move in to OTAs as they start next week, training camp, preseason, into their regular season. But a full preview for the guys of the Giants, the Eagles, Cowboys, their rosters, how they improved, how they've regressed, what additions they still need to make, how we expect them to perform this year, how they could perform against Washington. So I wanted to give you guys an in-depth look at every roster in the NFC East this year with, right now, a division that looks to be a three-man race. Now, if you were to ask other media members and you go on Twitter or any other social media platform, it's Dallas and Philadelphia that has garnered a ton of the attention in the NFC East. And I wanted to address that. And the best way to do that is to look at these rosters in comparison to Washington because Washington right now, in my humble opinion, is a team, you know, from the outside looking in and obviously putting biases to the side, is a team that has improved on either side of the ball. And then you look at the expectations that they have, both in the front office with Ron Rivera in his third year, and you look at on the field with Carson Wentz in a potential make or break year for him as a starter in the NFL, and then their easy schedule. Everything, the stars are beginning to align for Washington this year to have a potential double-digit win season or potentially even scoot up to 11 wins or even if you want to go on the low end and expect a minimal nine-win season. I don't think that's out of the question for Washington this year. But when you look at Dallas and you look at Philadelphia and you look at New York, we'll all get to. And I want to start with the Philadelphia Eagles, a team that made the playoffs last year with Jalen Hurts under center after officially taking over for Carson Wentz. And the Eagles went 9-8 and eight last year. And this is a scenario to where the Eagles have improved on either side of the ball. They drafted Jordan Davis from Georgia. They drafted Nicobe Dean from Georgia. They drafted a couple depth guys that I like. Cam Jurgens, interior lineman from Nebraska, is going to be an athletic center and probably that Jason Kelsey replacement last year when they drafted Landon Dickerson. He was thought of to be his replacement, and then he filled in at left guard. They drafted Kyron Johnson, edge rusher from Kansas, and then they drafted tight end Grant Calcaterra, tight end from 
SMU, who's dealt with a ton of concussion issues in his career as a transfer formerly from Oklahoma over to SMU, but an athletic tight end that has some tools. But Philadelphia right now, if you ask many, they are neck and neck with Dallas, not Washington, as the potential winner of the NFC East and qualifying for the playoffs, whether it be with the NFC East crown or as a wildcard team. And you look at this roster, and it's a good one. Um, it's not one where when I get into Dallas, and there's definitely some discrepancies as far as what we're actually looking at, and people are just kind of speaking out of their rear end and saying, oh, because you wear the star on the helmet, you automatically get 11 wins. That's not how this league works. All right, We understand that. That's not how this league works, and we've seen it for 20, 25 years. Same with Washington hasn't done jack for 20 years. Dallas hasn't done jack for 20 years. So why those expectations continue to fluctuate for them, and it's – it's always funny and hysterical to look at every single year in Dallas's top five, six of power rankings, and they're favored in the East no matter what. It doesn't matter if they roll out, you know, your uncle from down the block, you know, at quarterback, they're going to be favored for 11 wins. It's enough. I, it's every single year it happens with them and just tired of it. And I'm glad that I have this platform now to address that. And we'll get into them in a minute. You guys can hear my thoughts on the Dallas Cowboys. But the Philadelphia Eagles... They still have a lot of questions, I think, on their roster. Now, on the back end of the secondary, I like the James Bradbury addition. I've talked to you guys so much about his potential slot in with the Washington defense working opposite of William Jackson and more athletes on that back end and Jack Dorio wanting to run a little bit more of man, not having the bodies in prior years to do so. The Eagles don't run man. They like to run a lot of cover three with Jonathan Gannon's defense and allowing Darius Slay and Bradbury to make plays on the football, but... Their secondary room, as far as safeties, I still have questions about with um, Kayvon Wallace, Marcus Epps, and Anthony Harris, who they brought over from Minnesota just last year as kind of a prove-it deal. And with those two players, it's nice to have Bradbury and Slay on either side. I think they're going to be excellent corners for them this year, and they're need you know they're going to need them to be excellent just to kind of take that weight off of Jalen Hurts' shoulders to be able to compete this year in what has been really an ultimatum from GM Howie Roseman and owner Jeffrey Lurie for whether, you know, we're putting everything around you. We added A.J. Brown. We added Devonta Smith. We added some bodies up front for you. You have Dallas Goddard. We have the bodies here. Quest Watkins was a nice depth receiver. They brought in Zach Pascal from Indianapolis. They're hoping to get some more out of Miles Sanders as a health guy, someone that can be able to stay healthy because, as we know, the best ability is availability in this league. Boston Scott is back. We know that, you know, he's not the most sexy player in the world, but he just gets it done. And they drafted Kenneth Gainwell, that Memphis type player that Antonio Gibson has been for Washington can kind of get some more carries in the ground game and then work outside in space on third down and passing situations. So this is a roster right now, if you look at it just on paper, that 100% not only can challenge with NFC East crown, but challenge for 10-11 wins. And it starts up front on the defensive side of the ball for them, similarly like Washington. And you have Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, Javon Hargrave, Derek Barnett right now looks as their initial starting four. Now, I would argue that Jordan Davis takes over and starts opposite of Cox with Hargrave. And then Josh Sweat works over Derek Barnett as they just re-upped Josh Sweat last year as a young, impactful edge guy. But... Then you work your way back a little bit in the linebacker spot. And that was kind of the biggest hole for Philadelphia coming in 
to this offseason. They had some guys there last year. TJ Edwards played well. Alex Singleton was a tackle machine, but he's not someone that you want to use as your green dot in the middle of your defense, even though he can get you tackles, kind of similar to what John Bostic was in Washington. But you add somebody like Nicobe Dean and TJ Edwards is back, and they brought in Kaiser White from the Chargers as someone that can do a little bit of everything and play that weak side linebacker spot that will and be able to just roam around and make plays on the backside and roam, roam back and buzz out on running backs and tight ends. So they definitely improved at the second level. And overall, this roster is a good one. And when Washington faces them in week three and week 10, Washington's lone Monday night matchup, those games are going to be dogfights to the end. But the biggest thing for me in overall projecting Philadelphia's success this year is how will Jalen Hurts improve? Will he improve? Will he prove to Nick Sirianni, the second-year head coach in Philly, that he deserves the keys to the offense, not just obviously moving into next year, but four or five years down the road? Or is it going to be somebody next year that they are interested in, in a Bryce Young or a CJ Stroud or Tyler Van Dyke from Miami or Will Levis from Kentucky? All these names that we're going to start to hear in the next six to eight months as college football ramps up and we're working into next draft cycle because they have two first round picks next year and they're already, you know, armored up and they have those assets to be able, if they want to next year and Hurts isn't the answer and obviously Gardner Minshew, their backup right now is not the answer then they can move up potentially and grab someone like that if they believe that one of those guys is their guy and Hurts isn't. So Philadelphia could very easily win 10-11 games this year with the 30th, excuse me, the 30th toughest schedule in the league. Washington's at 32nd, Dallas is 31st, and the Giants are 29th. So the whole NFC East 29, 30, 31, 32 have the easiest schedules in the NFL. But the Eagles' success rides on the shoulders of Jalen Hurts. I think he's a heck of a talent. He is a modern-day quarterback with the ability to escape with his legs and create off-script. But the biggest thing for him is being able to sit in the pocket and also dissect defenses, understand what they're doing pre-snap, what they're rolling to post-snap. He's got weapons on the outside, obviously, in A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith. We talked a little bit about Dallas Goddard and his impact and obviously he's been excellent since he's been there in Philadelphia all the pieces are there especially along that front five and guys are tasked with protecting him and keeping him upright whether they win 10 11 games is on Jalen Hurts and if they win five or six games or seven games then that's on Jalen Hurts and and then we'll most likely see one of those aforementioned names I talked about just a couple minutes ago in Philly Green next year so from Philadelphia I want to move on to the New York Giants and a team right now that just doesn't look like they want to compete. New GM in town and Joe Shane and head coach Brian Dayball both came over from the Buffalo Bills. And the biggest thing for me and the reason I say that is because they were 30th in team spending when James Bradbury walked last, you know, a couple days ago to go to the Eagles. And it's not like they could not afford to pay him. So this year they declined Daniel Jones's fifth year option. How could you blame him? He's been substandard at best and he looks to be holding a clipboard in the near future. And I was one of the biggest supporters of them drafting Malik Willis from Liberty out of uh, when they were in the second round early at 36th overall. But you know they didn't, and Malik Willis obviously went to the Tennessee Titans later in the draft. But for the Giants this year, they're a team over the last few years that I thought were going to be much, much better. I thought Daniel Jones was going to be able to show a little bit of improvement. 
I thought Saquon Barkley is still a heck of a talent. I think he's been one of my favorite running backs to watch in the league when healthy. He's when you know football, you could say from a fan or just watching football perspective as an athlete, he's you know football is better when he's healthy and when he's available um, and the talent that he possesses as a runner. But we knew when he was coming out of school that he's not going to be able to just run around guys because of his pure athleticism. He's going to have to have guys in front of him that are able to block both inside and outside. And his rookie year was outstanding, but ever since then, he's been battling injuries and just hasn't been good. But that's also a correlation of the offensive line not being good. And now they have. Andrew Thomas showed improvement last year. They drafted Evan Neal, tackle out of Alabama, and they drafted Josh Azudu and Marcus McKeithen, two interior talents that blocked for Sam Howell at North Carolina last year. They drafted both of those guys from the Tar Heels program. They, McKeithen is expected to challenge for a right guard spot down the road. He's more of a developmental player, but Azudu could start right now at left guard, challenging Shane Lemieux, who they obviously want to improve upon. But you got John Feliciano at center. They brought in Mark Lewinsky from the Colts. Feliciano comes over from the Bills. Like I said, Lewinsky comes from Indianapolis Colts. And then you got bookends in Thomas and Neal. And not only should that help make Daniel Jones just feel a little bit more comfortable, whether that actually sees him deliver the ball downfield with some accuracy and on time and with some zip, or is just going to you know produce what Daniel Jones has been able to do seamlessly his entire career and just turn the ball over, whether he's fumbling the ball or throwing picks. That's been Daniel Jones's MO since he came out of Duke just a few years ago. But go to the defensive side of the ball. Oh, excuse me. I didn't even talk about the wide receivers. Kenny Galladay, Sterling Shepard, Kadarius Tony. I do have a couple questions at the wide receiver spot for them. And Galladay, after coming over from Detroit last year, is someone that looked almost disinterested at times. And that's kind of the biggest thing for me right now in trying to project Kenny's success this year. If you got someone on the outside that's not even interested in running routes and trying to compete and create separation for a still relatively young quarterback and Daniel Jones for the money that he's making. Uh, for me, if I'm a coach, you know, there's obviously politics involved in sports. You're making money. You have these multi-year contracts, four or five years. You're going to be, you just gonna, you're going to be on the field. And that's just, that's just how it is. This isn't high school ball where you can just say, hey, you don't want to play, you can go sit down. You can go get me water, right? Um, but Kenny Galloway at times looked disinterested. And it kind of, you look at the situation with Kadarius Tony, and they were rumoring as far as moving him, their first round pick last year after moving back. But they drafted Wandale Robinson out of Kentucky, a very similar player to Kadarius Tony. Some of these, a shorter stature guy, being able to work in the slot, more of a gadget weapon. Um, I don't think Robinson compares to Kadarius as far as his electricity with the ball in his hands. I think Kadarius had times last year where he was dominant and there was nobody able to cover him, especially working inside in the slot because of his short area quickness. And once you get the ball in his hands, he can make two, three guys miss. And then before you know it, he's turning a three-yard dig route into a 20, 25-yard gain to get you in position for a field goal. All these different things Kadarius Tony can do. He's uber talented, but they got to get the ball in his hands. But then he drafts somebody like Wondell Robinson on day two. And where does that leave Tony? They want to use them on similar packages as similar players because then you got to get Sterling Shepard and you got to get Darius Slayton on the field. And they brought over Richie James from the 49ers. These are... This is actually a decent wide receiver room, but as we know, similar to with Saquon's success 
the wide receiver position is a direct correlation to the quarterback position and their success. And it obviously translates down to the offensive line. And it all kind of ties in and meshes. And with this wide receiver room, I think it's a good one. I like the talent that they have there. The Wandell Robinson pick still is questionable to me. I think Kadarius Tony is going to be a heck of a talent for years to come, whether that's in New York or somewhere else as kind of this modern day weapon. We've seen all of these guys in the last few years come into the league. It's been him. Then you look at Wandale. Then you look at guys like Calvin Austin, the third from Memphis that went to the Pittsburgh Steelers. You look back to last year when the Arizona Cardinals took Rondale Moore out of Purdue. All these kind of similar, shorter, but electric receivers that are, are more than just gadget weapons. I want to clarify myself when I say that because when you think of gadget weapons, it's just a guy that, that comes in and is taking jet sweeps or kind of that Brandon Banks kind of role that he had years ago in Washington. But all these guys that I mentioned can run routes. They can win on the outside. They can win vertical. They can come back and cr- constantly create these open throwing windows for quarterbacks. They can work outside if you need to on a CB1 that's 6-1 with long arms that can run a 4-3. They can do that, and they can win for you in those spots. So Tony, Robinson are more than just gadget players, but for those two guys, similar skill sets on the same offense, a little bit of a question for me. So now I want to switch over to the defensive side of the ball. And I was the first person, and I'll say it, that I expected more out of the Giants defense last fall. Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator at the time, was expected moving into this past offseason, the current one we're actually in, to have some head coaching interviews as a defensive coordinator that was on the rise. And he had the pieces up front, had some pieces on the back end, obviously with James Bradbury and Adoree Jackson that they brought in from Tennessee prior to last year. And obviously, the Giants were just abysmal last year, winning four games. They went four and 13. They were one and eight on the road. They lost five games consecutively to end the year. But now they got Wink Martindale. And obviously, you guys, a lot of you from the DMV area, you know who Wink is. Tons of years with the Baltimore Ravens, with his physical, aggressive, in-your-face type of defense that predicates itself on getting after the quarterback, whether that's from the interior with your three tech defensive tackles or on the outside. And now he brings kind of that three, four defense that he ran at Baltimore, where he had these nose tackles in Calais Campbell and Michael Pierce over the years. And then now in New York, you draft Kayvon Thibodeau. Now I'm not going to sit here and say everyone is kind of praising the Giants draft. And I talked a little bit about in the last few pods post-draft, but I'm not going to praise the Giants draft for taking players that they should have taken early on in the draft anyway, if they were there. And they did. Evan Neal was there, they took him. Kayvon was there, and they took him. But I will judge them on their day two and day three with Robinson and Zudu and McKeithen, which I've already talked about. And then we'll get into the linebacker spot with Micah McFadden and Darian Beavers and those types of players that they did take moving into day three. But on the defensive side of the ball, I like what they have on the interior especially, with Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams. And that's where their defense starts, similarly to Washington, with John Allen and Deron Payne. And it all starts from the interior. If those guys can get a push, what Wink should expect them to, and they're going to be getting tons and tons of chances to get after the quarterback. He's going to be blitzing linebackers. He's going to be blitzing corners. He's going to be bringing safeties down in the box to rotate. He's going to be doing a lot of different things and throwing these exotic blitz packages out there with guys like Lawrence and Williams, and now you have that Ferrari off the edge and Kayvon Thibodeau who could progress 
and be a potential 10-plus sack-per-year guy that they expect him to be. And then you look at Aziz Ojolari, who's still there as well, and someone that had eight and a half sacks in his rookie year. And he was kind of thrown under the rug a little bit moving into the back portions of last year because the Giants just weren't good and they couldn't get off the field. And some of that sack production, you could just say, was in garbage time and teams were, you know, they, they had maybe their backup tackle in and he was just kind of working around guys on third and eight, third and nine, when teams were trying to chunk the clock on, on early downs and run the ball. But he's got tons of juice. And someone that, yep, eight and a half sacks in rookie year. I don't care if he's in garbage time or not. He showcased himself well at Georgia and then came in the league and had an eight and a half sack season in his rookie year. And then now you have Thibodeau on the other side working for you. And then you have Lawrence and Williams on the inside pushing the pocket to where they could take up the center in the guard. And then you got a one-on-one for Dexter Lawrence and then have fun with your tackles one-on-one with Thibodeau and Aziz Ojolari. And I talked a little bit in the past about the overall edge threats in this division. And Ojolari and Thibodeau in New York, you got Parsons and Demarcus Lawrence in Dallas, Chase Young, Montez Sweat in Washington, and Hassan Reddick, Brandon Graham, Derek Barnett, Josh Sweat in Philadelphia. That is a ton of edge rushing threat and ton of guys that can not only push the pocket, but you know, roam kind of sideline to sideline for you and make plays working back into the second level. Nice athletes along the front seven, not just these designated pass rushers, which we have in this league, but guys that can do more things for you if they're not able to push the pocket. So I want to move back to the second level where the Giants have Blake Martinez. I think he's been fine. He was He's never lived up to what he was with the Green Bay Packers. Um, someone as that middle anchor and anchoring that defense. And they have Tay Crowder, who's been fine. But they drafted Micah McFadden and Darian Beavers. And I want to start with Beavers because I got some live eyes on him at the Senior Bowl. And he had a little bit of mixed opinions from scouts and personnel after the Senior Bowl. Someone that flashed during the week, more so than he did at times on film. Because you watch that Cincinnati defense and you're focused on Maje Sanders at the front four. And then you're focused obviously on the outside with Sauce Gardner and Kobe Bryant and Brian Cook at safety. Darian Beavers in the middle of that defense got a little bit underrated and overlooked. And I thought he showcased really well at the Senior Bowl. Bigger body, but he's able to move around. Now, I, don't, I won't expect him to line up opposite of a Dalton Schultz or a Goddard or a Logan Thomas this year. And you know, tasking him from Week Martindale's defense to guard them one-on-one. And Blake Martinez isn't going to do that either. They'll try. They could try. But would I expect limited success if they were to do that. But someone that just has that NFL-ready frame right now, and the Giants are obviously in, in a rebuild. They won four games last year. They let Bradbury walk. They declined Daniel Jones' fifth-year option. Who knows what they're going to do with Saquon Barkley moving forward. They possibly could take a C.J. Stroud or a Bryce Young next year if they're in the top three picks. So that remains to be seen. But for them right now in that defense and at the second level, allow Darian Beavers to play, get snaps, throw him into the fire. I liked him at Cincinnati. I think that's a nice pick on day three. They had some questionable picks. And it's another one here that I like is, is Michael McFadden, a linebacker from Indiana that played that little bit of spinner role on the edge 
We see that with Hassan Reddick, Melvin Ingram, Uchenna Nwosu did a little bit for the Chargers as somebody that could rush the passer and then spin back and play at the second level. Landon Collins is a little bit like that where he can play at each level. Um, now, obviously, we know that Landon isn't great in coverage, but that spinner role is someone that can really get after the passer. And Micah McFadden at Indiana was one of the most athletic linebackers, in my opinion, uh, moving back in to day three. Someone that at Indiana, Indiana is obviously not known as this humongous football program, right? But Micah McFadden stood out. And for me, that's enough to take a chance on a guy, which the Giants did, and GM Joe Shane did, moving into day three, especially with the aforementioned linebackers that I talked about with Martinez and Crowder, and you draft Beavers, and now you got McFadden. Now, those are two guys that you move into year two, year three. Now, right now, they could probably get a ton of snaps on special teams, work in and sub. We know the NFL plays about 75% right now in sub to counter you know, the pass-happy NFL offenses in all 32 teams, and less sure the New England Patriots or maybe even Miami Dolphins are going to run the ball a ton this year. But Micah McFadden and Darian Beavers at the second level. Uh, I like Martinez. I think he's fine. Crowder is, is fine. But those two guys... Uh, back end uh, of day three were, were two nice ads for me. So back into the secondary, and this is where we have questions with James Bradbury now gone. And right now, it looks like Cordell Flott is one of their starting corners opposite of Adoree Jackson. And for a lot of you guys out there probably not familiar with Cordell Flott, corner out of LSU, someone that has, you watch his film, if he was two, three inches taller and about 40 pounds heavier, he probably wouldn't have been a either day one pick or an early, early, early day two pick. But when a guy is, is coming out of school at LSU, now granted, it's SEC school. We obviously know the talent that LSU has. They produced Derek Stingley this year. But he's 155 pounds soaking wet. Now, he is 6'1", and I'll give him that, um, which, which is fine. It's obviously a potential ideal height at the cornerback position in the NFL. But... 155, 60 pounds, just not going to cut it. You know, you have guys that are playing running back as freshmen in high school that are 170, 75 pounds, let alone a corner opposite of a Dory Jackson who's getting some tread on the tires now that is going to be tasked with guarding Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, the aforementioned names in the division, the C.D. Lambs, the Devonta Smiths, the A.J. Browns. Now, we've already talked a little bit about Devonta Smith and, and his weight, but it's different when you're playing on, on the defensive side of the ball a little bit. You know, you guys are kind of getting my gist here. And for someone to start potentially as your CB1 or CB2 at that weight, he's going to have to make a ton of progress this offseason into his first regular season in New York strength and conditioning program to beef up his frame at least 10 to 15 pounds. Now, how much is that going to affect his overall flexibility? his change of direction, his overall speed, because he's been used to playing at that speed for so long. But Giants drafted him in the third round, so they expect him to play. But someone that's that light, it's very hard for me at the defensive position and the physical the physical requirements that it is that it takes to play the corner position at a high level in the NFL, not just trying to reroute guys and stay hip to hip down the, down the field 30, 35 yards in man, but also coming up and making tackles on 200-plus-pound running backs that can run around you, through you, and over you. Um, that's the biggest question that Cordell had coming out of LSU is, is, will his tackling ability, now he's not afraid to stick his face in the mud, but will that ability be able to translate 
to the NFL level. And obviously, the Giants think that he can. So maybe he proves me wrong. Makes me, maybe he, Cordell Flott makes me put my foot in my mouth here in the next two to three years. But right now, it's Adoree Jackson on one side and Cordell Flott on the other. And for me, if I'm Washington and Philly and Dallas facing them twice a year, I'm either running to his side or I'm putting one, a, a nice blocker on him, clearing him the entire out of the way, pulling my, my tackles to his side and getting that running back going on his side. And then I'm just you know, going to line up people and get isos on him on the outside with more physical, bigger receivers. Terry McLaurin, not the biggest guy in the world, but he plays physical. I think even looking at someone on the back end of Washington's roster, like a Kelvin Harmon and how physical he is, put him on the outside, right? Or Jahan Dotson, a my ball, alpha mentality guy. Not the biggest guy in the world. He's not Drake London. He's not Traylon Burks. He's not A.J. Brown. These receivers that are 205, 10 plus pounds. I mean, Burks is, is creeping up on 225, 230 pounds. Um, but he is someone that plays tougher, more physical than his overall stature call for. So the Giants overall have a ton of questions. I don't know where to project in this year because they have some pieces, especially on the offensive side of the ball. I like what they're doing in their front five with Neil and Thomas as bookends. And Andrew Thomas took a lot of flack in his rookie year, but was better in year two, showed a lot of improvement. Neil's going to be an eight to 10 year starter in this league. They're going to need improvements at quarterback. I would like to see Saquon improve, just not against Washington. He can save his 192 yard, two touchdown games for somebody else. Do it against Dallas. Do it against Philly. But on the offensive side of the ball, I like what New York's doing. And they have questions on defense. Aziz is going to get after the passer. Leonard Williams will. Dexter Lawrence will. Kayvon Thibodeau will. They have pieces. But for right now, they're probably a team that you could firmly place in the basement as expectations for the NFC East. So I want to move on. To everyone's favorite, Dallas Cowboys. Jerry Jones's precious Dallas Cowboys. Now, you can go on any site. Go on ours. You can ESPN, NFL Network, whatever media site you want to go on. And check out potential top 10 picks for next year. We just released it on Twitter. Just released it on Instagram. A few of my guys on the scouting staff, Joe and Kyle, predicted that the commanders are going to finish with the sixth overall pick this year. Dallas? Oh, nowhere to, where to be found. I'm sure that everyone is projecting them to win a ton of games this year. And what's changed? Absolutely nothing. Talked about it at the top of the pod. It doesn't matter who they have at quarterback, running back, offensive line. Doesn't matter who they lose. Doesn't matter what changes they're making in the front office. Now, granted, Mike McCarthy is back. Dan Quinn, despite entertaining some interviews, for head coaching spots. He's back as a defensive coordinator. But this team has regressed. But they're Super Bowl favorites, folks. They are because who they are, I guess. Dallas Cowboys, you have the star on your helmet. You play at AT&T Stadium. You have Jerry Jones as the owner. You bring in celebrities for each game. You get primetime matchups each and every year. But that's not what we're gonna do here. I'm not gonna look at them from a 10,000 foot view and give them 12, 13 wins just because they have the star on their helmet. It's not what we do here. We talk ball, right? So let's dive into this Dallas Cowboys roster, a team that has regressed from last year. And obviously, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Dak Prescott, who is the best quarterback in this division, and I don't think it's close. Um, someone that can create off script, on script. He can sit back in the pocket and dissect you for 400 yards, or he can 
escape out of the pocket and do a little bit. Now, granted, he has been a little different um, looking into last year and after his his nasty ankle injury, um, suffered almost two years ago. But Dak Prescott is a obviously the, st- the straw that stirs the Dallas offense. Um, someone that's been there, a, a great story. Um, you look at Dak's story in, in the past and his family story and how he's come up and his success at Mississippi State and then coming into the draft as a not highly touted guy. Um, at that point, you know, it's, it's just, it's not hard, uh, to root for guys like that. Um, but I know for a lot of you out there, it's, it's hard because you know, he's wearing that star on his helmet, but Dak Prescott is everything for the Dallas offense. He's everything for the Dallas defense and he's everything for the Dallas Cowboys as a team and their success hinges on his ability to not only succeed, produce in masses every single week, but also stay healthy. If you look behind him, they've yet to address the quarterback position just as a backup, bringing in a veteran potentially like Andy Dalton or Nick Foles, or even trying to sign like Ryan Fitzpatrick this year. It's Cooper Rush, Will Greer, and Ben DiNucci. And we've seen, well, granted, Cooper Rush has actually had some decent success when he's come in the league for them and had to step in in a couple of games. But Dak Prescott, if there's if there's any team in the division with one player that's realizing their success, Dak Prescott 100% for this Dallas offense. So... Here's where the questions start, and this is where it gets fun for me, looking at this Dallas roster, because there are a ton of questions at the running back spot for this Dallas team. Where do they go with Ezekiel Elliott? Because for me, he's been a direct success, we talk about it a lot, of this offensive line and their ability over the last few years to dominate along the front five. It doesn't matter if it's Tyron Smith or with Zach Martin or before Travis Frederick's retirement, and you look on the right side, and they had Lyle Collins. When they were in their prime, they were the most dominant offensive line in football, and it really wasn't close. And every single time Mizuki Elliott would run the ball, he wouldn't get touched until he's four or five yards down the field. And then you got to tackle a guy that's 215-plus pounds, and that's tough to do. But you look into last year, you look into the year prior, and Dallas's offensive line has started to regress a little bit. Guys are getting older. Guys are leaving. Then you look into this year, and Tyron Smith is back at left tackle. Zach Martin's at right tackle. They drafted Tyler Smith from Tulsa in the first round. It's a splashy pick, but they have a massive need at guard, and he played tackle at Tulsa. Now, granted, he's projected as a guard in the NFL, but Terrence Steele is at right tackle right now, and I think that is a spot where you could improve upon with Lyle Collins now protecting the arm side of Joe Burrow with the Bengals. And like I said, Tyron Smith is a little bit older. Tyler Biadash is okay. I don't think he moves the needle for anybody at center. I think he's fine. But they lost, just like Collins, they lost Connor Williams to Miami. And that's what kind of that whole like guard pops up. And I, I like the fit if they want to plug in Tyler Smith at left guard right away, but it's it's much easier said than done by moving a guy that's played tackle all his life at college and then sliding him into guard, and especially when you're working next to such a Hall of Famer in a guy like Tyron Smith to his inside shoulder. Um, putting a rookie in at left guard it always you know raise some issues, especially when you're in a division and you're facing guys like John Allen or on Payne and Jordan Davis is down in Philly. They have Fletcher Cox. And I just talked about Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams. A rookie on those veterans, you know, you're asking for problems. And then you look back to the running back spot. And someone like Ezekiel Elliott, 
that is obviously, you know, typical Dallas, right? Flash and flare, all eyes on me, spotlight, doing his, you know, feed Zeke thing, whatever he wants to do with his crop top. Um, you know, that's his thing. And when he was succeeding, no one's going to say anything to him. But when you're averaging three yards a carry and you're getting 10 carries a game and you're putting up 25, 30 yards, those little antics uh, start to you know piss off some people, right? And you got a guy like Tony Pollard behind you, someone that I expect to have a major role this year, both in the running game as someone that has more burst than Ezekiel Elliott, someone that can create more outside the tackles, get out in space and open up that offense a little bit more. And then you can ask him to come in on third down and be a nice pass-catching threat like Antonio Gibson was out of Memphis, like Kenneth Gainwell in Philadelphia was out of Memphis, and then now Tony Pollard, another Memphis guy in the NFC East as a running back, potential three-down talent. So I have a ton of questions at the running back spot for them. I don't know how they're going to handle the workload for them. You're not expecting Rico Dowdle, Jaquan Hardy to have any snaps, substantial snaps this year in case of, or unless injury occurs, which will happen for each of these teams and how they handle it and move on. Um, that's something that Washington has done a good job of, I feel like, the last few years of even the last year with back end of the year playing Philly with Garrett Gilbert and the injuries that, that they suffered, um, moving their way back in and trying to remain competitive as much as possible with third and fourth string guys at times and people that they brought in off the street. I mean, you guys all remember when they played Dallas and Milo Eifler was playing edge and the guy didn't even have an intro on Sunday Night Football. And it was completely embarrassing. It was hilarious, but it's completely embarrassing. You guys don't even have an intro and you're playing with guys off the street. But, you know, sometimes that is the lay of the land in the NFL. But with Dallas and running back spot, let's move to the wide receiver spot. And Amari Cooper's now gone. So who takes over wide receiver one role? C.D. Lamb? I guess so. He's thought that he's been the guy for a long time. He's going to have to be the guy. I think he's got all the talent in the world to holster the majority of the targets. Someone that is an aerial threat can create at every single level of the defense. Uh, I think he's a heck of a talent. Um, but my questions come about looking behind him. Michael Gallup's coming off an ACL. They paid him. But what if he tweaks it in camp? What if he tweaks it in the preseason or early in the regular season? Now you're asking guys like James Washington, who they brought over from Philadelphia, excuse me, Pittsburgh, who was below average at best, someone that just ran nine routes and hoped for the best. Then you draft a guy like Jalen Tolbert out of South Alabama. I love the pick. I love Jalen Tolbert as a player, and he may work into substantial snaps this season, even more so than guys like Washington or someone like Simi Fahoku or Noah Brown that could have some snaps as well. But you're asking a lot from someone like Michael Gallup to stay healthy after a torn ACL. I think he's proven that he can have some success, but you're asking him to stay healthy. ACL could hamper his ability to burst off the line, create separation off the line of scrimmage. I'm sure teams are going to test him early, getting guys in his face, playing press man, playing press bail, trying to reroute him with that torn ACL and seeing how comfortable he is exploding off of that leg. So at the wide receiver spot for me right now, I'm more comfortable with their tight ends than I am at the wide receiver spot because, again, I like CeeDee Lamb. I think Michael Gallup's a good player, but you need four or five receivers in this league that can succeed, especially when they're going to want to throw the ball with Dak Prescott. And James Washington, Noah Brown, Simi Fahoku, and Jalen Tolbert don't really move the needle too, too much for me, especially with James Washington, someone that they obviously expect to create a little bit for them this year. So enjoy that if that's the plan 
for your offense, Kellen Moore. But tight end, Dalton Schultz, one of the most underrated tight ends in football. Um, I would argue that he is the best tight end in the division. Um, I like Logan Thomas. I like Dallas Goddard a lot. Um, but Dalton Schultz playing on the franchise tag this year, he's going to get paid somewhere else. But he's someone that's broken out the last two years. Had 600 yards in, in 2020 and then had 800 plus yards this past year. And someone that has taken over that Jason Witten-like role for Dallas's offense. Um, supremely underrated. It doesn't matter if you want to align a little bit of a quicker linebacker on him or you want to bring down a safety and try to cover him in man. He can out-physical you. He understands when to sit his routes in zone. He can work on three, four-yard slants and take it 15, 20 yards downfield because he has that explosiveness and open field ability and the necessary athleticism and agility to create. He's got sure hands. Um, this is somebody that deserves more attention. If there's one guy on this Dallas roster to respect, as a Washington family, you guys out there, it's Dalton Schultz and someone that Washington 100% must have a game planned for these next you know, the two games and this fall. So we talked a little about the offensive line. So let's switch over to the defensive side of the ball for Dallas. And it starts with their bookends in Demarcus Lawrence and Micah Parsons, who I expect to have a ton of reps uh, at the edge this year. Now, I'll talk about this in a little bit, how they're drafting a Micah Parsons and how they played him in year one was not the plan initially that they had, especially thinking of him as a linebacker, but they lost Randy Gregory at the edge spot. Now they kind of played a little dosey -si do similar to what JD McKissick did with Buffalo and Washington, eventually coming back to Washington, but Randy Gregory's now in Denver and he's going to pair with, with Bradley Chubb for the Broncos and that stacked AFC West. But Right now, it's DeMarcus Lawrence, Lawrence and Dante Fowler, who I'm not related to, but someone that is kind of bounced around the league, Dante Fowler. Went to Atlanta, been in Jacksonville. He's been everywhere. And then now he lands in Dallas, and someone that is going to be tasked right now looks upon as a designated pass rusher because, like I said, I think Micah Parsons is going to get a ton of snaps off the edge. Um, he was excellent. As a pass rusher, I think Micah Parsons has the chance to win multiple Defensive Player of the Year trophies. He won, obviously, the Defensive Rookie of the Year last year. It wasn't even close, um, even as good that Patrick Sertan was for Denver last year at corner. But Micah Parsons off the edge, Marcus Lawrence off the edge is a heck of a duo. But they didn't draft Micah Parsons to be an edge rusher. And these are where my questions arise for overall, you know, ex ex what the expectations are for Dallas's defense this fall. You have Micah Parsons on the edge. You got Lawrence on the other side. In the middle, you got Carlos Watkins and Neville Gallimore. Eh, okay, that's fine. Two, three techs that can take up some bodies. Rotationally, they drafted Osa Digizuwa to UCLA last year. Tristan Hill. John Ridgway, one of my favorites in the class from Arkansas interior D lineman, I think will work into some snaps. But again, he's a rookie. Not expecting him to have that sack production or, you know, he'll, he'll take up some double teams. He'll, he'll push the pocket a little bit, a little more active, active along the defensive line. And guys like Jordan Davis had a lot of the attention as these bigger interior linemen. John Ridgway was one of those day two, day three guys that Dallas was able to grab right after grabbing Damon Clark, linebacker at LSU, which we'll get to when we move back to the linebacker spot. But they did not draft Micah Parsons to be an edge rusher. Now, it remains to be seen how active and how versatile they want Micah to be this year. Do they want him doing similar to what last year in those first and you know first quarter, second quarter of the seasons where he's also rushing the passer, but he's doing so as a blitzer 
and then at the second level making tackles, buzzing out on tight ends, and as we saw in the Giants game, at the third level making plays against Kenny Galladay in man coverage, buzzing back and making play at the goal line in the passing game. Now, that's rare, obviously, to do as a linebacker. Now, that's some of the things that even Jack Del Rio expects Jamin Davis and Cole Holcomb to be able to do as good enough athletes to do so. Now, I don't really want Cole Holcomb and Jamin Davis flexing out on wide receivers. That's a whole other ball game and a lot to ask from the linebacker spot, even though Del Rio asks already a lot of the guys at the second level. But for Micah, they drafted him to be a core piece of the middle of their defense. Now, I know I've been swaying off track just a little bit and talk about him at edge and in the back level of their defense, but he is someone that when they drafted him, they wanted him to pair him next to Leighton Vander Esch and run those primary two linebacker sets. Because remember, they had Jalen Smith also in the building, and initially it was, all right, they got LVE, they got Parsons, they got Jalen Smith, three elite linebackers, and the versatility to do a lot of different things and show a lot of exotic coverages at the second level. But... They cut Jalen Smith, and they move Micah down. And then you draft somebody like Jabril Cox out of LSU, who got hurt last year, but someone that can also play kind of that hybrid linebacker safety role. But then they also bring in Keanu Neal from Atlanta, who's now gone. But he played that sort of Buffalo nickel role type for Dan Quinn's defense last year, where he was roaming down at the second level. So it wasn't Jalen Smith, Parsons, and LVE. It was LVE. And LVE, that's it. They played a lot with just one linebacker on the field and with Parsons up near the line of scrimmage, whether they rotated him back post-snap, they started him at the second level and then showed his face over the guard at the, at the snap. So this year, the linebacker spot is a huge question for the Dallas defense, especially if they're not able to get a push in the interior because Parsons and Lawrence will get theirs. But at the middle of their defense with Leighton Van Der Esch, Devontae Bond, Luke Gifford, and Aaron Hansford, who they brought over from Texas A&M as a UDFA. Initially, I reported, and I was understood that Aaron Hansford was coming to Washington as a UDFA signing, but there are a ton of questions at the linebacker spot. Now, I think they will still roll with Leighton Van Der Esch as that one linebacker and do some different things with their safeties, rotating down, but someone like Devontae Bond that you expect to have substantial Snaps, 2016, uh, day three pick out of Oklahoma. Not a ton of success, obviously, in the NFL. Now you're asking him to fill, honestly, that that Jalen Smith role that they saw when they initially drafted Micah Parsons as those three linebackers. But you want to put Mike on the edge? Do that. But you didn't draft him to be a T.J. Watt, a Miles Garrett, a Chase Young. You drafted him to be a guy at the middle of your defense, a Bobby Wagner type that's extremely athletic, a modern-day versatile defender that can do a lot of different things for you along every single level. And if they do limit him to the front, that's fine. I think he's going to be excellent at doing that. If he develops into a pass rusher, I think he's going to develop into one of the best in the league where he could have potentially 13, 14, 15 sacks a year. The guy's outstanding. He can do everything. Um, I'm not trying to take anything away from Micah Parsons' skill set, but Dallas has questions. At the second level, how are they going to succeed with Bond on the field? Do they want to roll him with LVE? Do they want to rotate down Jaron Curse or Malik Coker, who they have a lot of questions with? They drafted Israel Mukwamu, a corner out of South Carolina last year, that they transferred over to the safety position. Do they want to rotate him down in that Keanu Neal role? So a lot of fresh names on this defense. I think they'll be good. I don't think they'll be great. Um, it starts up front with every other single defense 
in the NFC East. But let's transfer back to the third level and talk about the corners and the secondary room. And Jaron Curse, Malik Cooker, they're fine. But Anthony Brown and everyone's favorite Trayvon Diggs. CB1 Trayvon Diggs. So for me, I want to start with Diggs. Someone that gave up a ton of yards last year uh, in man coverage. Uh, and when he was not picking balls off, players were running by him. Players were open. Players were catching balls over his head. That's Trayvon Diggs as a corner. And I know a lot of you remember D'Angelo Hall. And I don't want to hate on D'Angelo Hall. I like D'Angelo. But someone that is a complete ball hawk. Now, for Trayvon, a lot of you guys are familiar with him. He went to good counsel in the DMV area and then went to play college ball at Alabama where he initially transferred over to the corner spot after being recruited as a wide receiver. But having those ball skills as a wide receiver obviously has helped him. Now, it's hard <laughs> to get interceptions at the NFL level. We all understand that. It's a difficult, difficult thing to do. And the success that he's had, you look back at guys like Xavier Howard and you look back at J.C. Jackson and his, the success that he had, I mean, even coming out of Maryland, the success that he had, be able to make plays on the football. But Trayvon has a long way to go as being a shutdown corner man, corner that J.C. Jackson is, or that Xavier Howard is. And he got his Pro Bowl nod, obviously, because of that ball production that he had this year. But flexing him out against a Terry McLaurin, Devonta Smith, Kenny Galladay, A.J. Brown is nightmare fuel. And he gets a lot of his picks by just kind of scoping the eyes on the quarterback and picking off guys like Daniel Jones and Taylor Heineke and the quarterbacks that Dallas faced last year. But if you ask him to mirror, stay hip to hip with any receiver in the league, Trayvon Diggs, that's not Trayvon Diggs' role. So who is it then? Because you look on the other side and it's Anthony Brown and depth guys like Jordan Lewis and they drafted Kelvin Joseph, which was a major reach out of Kentucky last year. It remains to be seen what his situation is after some off-field stuff that's happened in the last few weeks. But Dallas's secondary needs some help. And it was a spot in this year's draft where obviously last year, even look back to last year in 2021, where they were going to take a Patrick Sertan or a J.C. Horn. Now, they obviously took Parsons, and it's worked out damn good for him. But this year, when they were sitting there, uh, even at the back end of the first round, and they took Tyler Smith, uh, taking a Daxton Hill, taking a Lewis Sign, or a Jaquan Brisker, could have been the optimal add for them there because they need someone that can play at every single level in coverage, coming down and making plays in the run, and also as a culture changer on the back end because they've been below average in the secondary for years on end now and they just have not added pieces there really since drafting Morris Claiborne, who was fine in Dallas, but obviously no, the NFL you know stands for not for long and he wasn't there for long at all. But Dallas still has a ton of questions within the secondary. They're going to have an easy schedule this year. Now, I say that with a grain of salt, and I want you guys to take that with a grain of salt because Washington, New York, Philly, Dallas all have easy schedules this year. But once we get into quarter two of the season, week six, week seven, and teams are going to be able to start to win more games than expected, lose more games than expected. Teams are going to outperform themselves, and they're going to regress. Looking at this division right now, and these aren't going to be, I don't want to make any official predictions. You know, this is May. I'll make some predictions here 
back in the late end of summer, late August, and September before we get the season rocking and rolling. But this is a division right now where Dallas, Philadelphia, and Washington is going to be a three-man race for the division. And looking at Washington and their roster and everything to prove, they're going to have to pay guys along that front four in the near future in Young and Sweat. Payne looks to be gone after throwing him around in, in trades the last few years, trying to trade for Matthew Stafford last year, trying to trade for Russell Wilson this year. The offense is going to be better. They improved at running back, wide receiver, offensive line. They won seven games last year with Taylor Heineke. And if you guys follow me on Twitter, at Ryan Fowler, I tweeted about this the other day, you cannot expect Washington to be less successful than they were last year after winning the seven games with Taylor Heineke, with just Terry McLaurin on the outside, with Deami and Curtis, obviously Curtis being hurt, Deami not being good, really, not being able to create separation in his first season, and then obviously missing time. Logan Thomas was out, so it was John Bates and Ricky Seals-Jones the tight end spot. Antonio Gibson had a little trouble handling, handling the ball. Um, shuffle of bodies along the front five. Montez Sweat was out for most of the year, a little bit of the year. Chase Young was out for the majority of the year. I could keep going, but they won seven games last year. And now you have one of the easiest schedules, the easiest schedule on paper this year. Now, granted, just like I said, take that with a grain of salt. Teams will improve. Teams will digress. We could be playing at the back end of the year against a Houston or an Atlanta team. Now, granted, not likely that those teams will be in playoff contention by the time that we play them. But who knows? It's the NFL. happens every year. Teams get better. Teams get worse. Every team goes through cycles, right? But... This is a scenario for Washington to where I expect them to compete their tails off this year. And when we get in the back end of the year, week 14, 15, 16, to where I expect them to be able to compete, whether it's for an NFC East crown remains to be seen, but for at least a wild card spot. And I don't think that's obviously out of the expectations because I think it's probably written on whiteboards in Ashburn right now in the commander's facility. Nothing less probably than double digit wins and that's the expectation you win the giant you beat the giants twice you split against philly and dallas you beat the teams you're supposed to in jacksonville detroit atlanta houston that right there is six or seven wins right there and then you say you split against tennessee and indianapolis and you potentially beat a cleveland team whether they have deshaun watson or not i think washington will be able to compete against teams like that you play minnesota i think that's a winnable game green bay Still have Aaron Rodgers? They still have Aaron Rodgers. Look, AR-12, as long as you got AR-12 throwing the ball around, you're going to be able to have some success. But that's a competitive game. All these games are competitive. The Niners, what are they going to do at quarterback? Is Debo Samuel there or not? Looks to be, but looks to be isn't you know Debo Samuel on the field at and training camp yet or moving into the regular season. It remains to be seen. We have a lot to figure out and unravel as we move in to the next few months. But... That's going to do it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoy this full in-depth preview of the NFC East. It's going to be a division that's going to be a rat race towards the end. I expect it to be Philly, Washington, and Dallas towards the end. But lots of questions within each roster, including Washington. They obviously have their questions at quarterback. They have questions at linebacker. They remain to be seen. What they're going to do with the middle linebacker spot, whether they want that typical mic, even though it's a kind of a dying position in the NFL. They have some questions in their depth at corner. But... The NFC East is going to be fun this year. Football's coming up. We're really getting riled up here. Moving into OTAs next week, the first of three sessions for Washington. But as always, thank you guys for tuning in. You can find me on social media and Twitter at underscore Ryan Fowler. This podcast is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your news. 
your sports, your info. You can find our podcast at All My Work is housed at thedraftnetwork.com. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in, and I will see you next time on Commanding the Huddle. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.